So to begin, you can feel free to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your work. Well, uh, my name is Lucia Pradella. I'm a senior lecturer in international political economy at King's College London. And uh, I have been working on Marxist capital and uh, colonialism, which is the reason why I think you wanted to talk to me today for uh, quite a long time. It started as my MA dissertation, actually, uh, in 2004. And uh, what I did for, for that work was basically to read Marx's Capital uh, in the light of uh, Marx's articles on colonialism and pre-capitalist societies. So at the time, the main things I had uh, available were his um, articles on China, India, Ireland, uh, the United States, and um, his articles and writings on Russia. And so this is what I used for, for my dissertation. And then working on this, I, I think I came out, I came up with a different interpretation of volume one, uh, which highlights the kind of centrality of colonialism in Marx's analysis of capitalist accumulation. And so then what happened is that um, I went to Berlin to work at the Marx Angus Gesamthausgabe, which is the completed um, edition of Marx's and Angus's works. And when I was there, I kind of discovered, personally discovered the fourth section of this edition that basically presents for the first time all the notebooks that uh, Marx and Angus used to write. And so my what became my PhD dissertation basically mainly focused on uh, the place of colonialism and the world market uh, within Marx's analysis of capital uh, in a more kind of um, genealogical sense. So looking especially from the 40s, uh, mid 40s uh, until uh, the publication of Capital Volume 1. Yeah, so this is basically what I've done um, on Marx. Uh, and uh, and colonialism and I think I've written a bit more since then uh, uh, some articles and um, and yeah and I recently co-edited the Routledge handbook of Marxism and post-Marxism. Mm -hmm. Excellent and and I came across your work uh, in one of your articles uh, on the value theory in the global south and it prompted me to you know, to want to interview you and to ask you about about exactly what you said—the centrality of, of colonialism to Marx's analysis of capital accumulation and, and value theory. So perhaps we can begin there and, and start first. Uh, I, I wanted to originally talk first about the Taiping Rebellion and his thoughts, but maybe first just taking it a bit more broadly. You know, how did your interpretation of Marx's capital change upon reading? his notebooks and, and his thoughts about colonialism. What we know quite a lot about the Taiping Revolution in the light of the articles that Marx published for the New York uh, Daily Tribune. Um, I think something interesting that emerges when we actually look at um, those articles on, on China is that there has been a lot of attention to his articles on India and the double mission of British colonialism in India. 
but much less uh, to the fact that already at the end of the 1840s, so after the defeat of the 1848 revolution, Marx and Engels supported uh, the first steps of what um, would become the typing revolution that uh, went on for about uh, 14 years uh, in China. And so I think in terms of uh, how this kind of attention to China changes our understanding, or at least Marx's understanding, I would say first that um, his passages in the Communist Manifesto, when he says, oh, the cheapness of industrial commodities are the kind of weaponry that, uh, I don't know, uh, I think defeats uh, these um, a kind of uh, backward societies and opens uh, the doors to new markets and so on. Um, so there are these passages in which the expansion of capitalism is seen as inevitable. And on the other side, the agency in the international revolutionary uh, process mainly lays in the industrial proletariat in, in Europe. And, um, and so the, the view that emerges in uh, 1848 is that uh, if the industrial proletariat is uh, successful in Europe, then since Europe is, of course, the kind of core of um, global system, including the colonies, then uh, this revolution would also free the rest of the world and therefore also the colonial world. And so there is no agency for the colonized in this, in this kind of picture. So I think if we look at the articles on China, this kind of radically changes because after the defeat of the 1848 revolution, Marx says, well, actually, we see new revolutionary processes going on in the colonies, like for example, the Taiping revolution. And it well may be that the kind of uh, impact of these movements on the world market, like the contraction of, uh, of international markets because of these revolutions will have an economic impact on Europe, enhancing the factors of crisis and thus accelerating the possibility of a new um, revolutionary movement. So for the first time already, let's say early 50s, January 1850, Marx and Engels don't see just one way toward revolution, but see two ways. So on the one side, the industrial proletariat, and on the other side, the uprisings of uh, the colonized. And in terms of the understanding of capitalism, I think it's interesting because it may be, I was thinking about this, it may be that uh, this more kind of dialectical understanding of the revolutionary movement also pushed Marx to develop a better understanding of the role of imperialism within the process of capital accumulation. Yeah, and, and you, you talk a little bit about Marx's thoughts on anti-colonial revolution and kind of how they were expanding. And you have this quote that Marx and Engels wrote to each other where they talk about the, the Republic Chinois uh, written on the Great Wall. And I, I was curious about that, if you could explain that a little bit more about kind of, you know, how they were understanding the, the rebellion as it was happening and the, the potential for, you know, some people read Marx and Engels and they say, uh, you know, they view these countries as backwards and the peasants as a backward class. And of course there was no possibility for revolution, but here you have them potentially uh, 
you know, approvingly believing that there will be a, a Republican revolution in China. So yeah, how did that impact their, uh, their belief about the potentiality of, of anti-colonial revolution as, a, as an alternative in some ways to the revolutions that they had seen fail in, in Europe? Yeah, so um, I think the first thing to say about that is that, especially at the beginning, Marx and Angus had a very positive view of the Taiping Revolution because, uh, well, first of all, they identified the roots of these revolutionary movements. On the one side, in the corruption uh, of the Manchu dynasty, so they saw both internal factors and then the consequences of the expansion of British and Western markets through the opium trade um, <clears throat> in, in China. And what the uh, insurgents initially uh, tried to do was basically to overthrow the Manchu dynasty and also to basically establish a new uh, kingdom uh, where they basically gathered destituted peasants and um, um, fought together extending control over also central China. And initially, this kind of um, uprising also had a communi com communist, um, um, at least ideally communist uh, projection, in the sense that they wanted to share uh, the property of the land and also improve the rights of women. So uh, I think that uh, Marx and Angus uh, wrote quite uh, positively uh, about that. Uh, and as I said, <clears throat> they saw two intertwined paths uh, to social revolution. Now, I don't think, so what I kind of, um, I wouldn't uh, uh, agree with is that I don't think they see the anti-colonial revolution as an alternative, but they, uh, and they don't abandon the idea that uh, you need developed capitalist system in order to reach uh, socialism but they start to see more of a connection between the movements. So I, I think it's also worth mentioning that um, in, the, in the 60s, when uh, this revolution starts to basically, um, uh, basically um, become more invol involute and, uh, and also uh, start weakening, and then will be repressed by the uh, Manchu dynasty along with uh, Britain and the other Western powers that uh, supported the repression. So they, they, Marx publishes an article in, in which he says that this involution is a, a result of a kind of a fossil or kind of a lack of dynam dynamism within Chinese society. So I, I think it's worth mentioning also this article because then one could say, well, then, uh, and I think um, some critics have said, well, this is still quite an Orientalist and dismissive view of, um, of Ch Chinese society, right? So he becomes also quite critical of the Taiping, uh, criticizing their corruption, the fact that uh, they became basically, um, uh, they started to bully the population and they were almost worse than the actual uh, powers in, in China. So, um, and I have been thinking quite a lot about, about this article recently. And what I can say is that 
I, I think that, um, so Marx never abandons this idea that you need a developed capitalist system for a successful uh, socialist revolution. And secondly, uh, if we look at, uh, for example, Sugihara or other scholars who um, argued that um, on the one side, there, there was a form of industrious revolution in China and in the Central Asia, even after the expansion of uh, colonialism um, in, in the rest of Asia, that um, uh, represented also kind of form of economic resistance to the expansion of the West. Because in the end, the local system, even if it wasn't based on uh, technological progress as uh, the capitalist system, still guaranteed low costs of commodities and relatively high standards of living to the population. And, and this, uh, this, this is important. So, um, but at the same time, this system uh, wasn't based on the kind of compulsion for economic progress and technological advancement as uh, the capitalist system. So I think that um, probably Marx expresses this in his uh, article in, in a language that I don't think we could support today, but at the same time is reflecting the fact that um, that there, there is indeed a difference that also impacts on the possibilities of revolutionary uh, change. And in, in that respect, you write about Marx's view on the, the opium wars as well and their centrality. Uh, I think you wrote that they, they're taking, or Marx wrote that they're taking place with the, the globe as the battlefield of the opium wars. And, and how did, he view the the process of imposing colonialism and these unequal treaties on China uh, as central to, I, I guess, what, what I'm curious as well about it, and you talk about this in relation to the last chapter of volume one on, on the primitive accumulation of capital. You know, how did he begin to view these struggles as very much integral to the accumulation of capital um, and, and sort of preclude later on people writing about um, the centrality of colonialism to capital accumulation, not just this kind of uh, the enclosure acts in, in Britain in the, in the English countryside, but instead this more global view of the beginning of, of the world economy and, and world money. Okay, thanks. So I think there are two main things to say here. I think, um, first of all, yes, um, it's important to highlight that the chapter and the section in English, uh, in the English edition, on the so-called primitive accumulation is basically um, not just focused right on on England and the kind of um, internal process of transformation in the countryside and the enclosures and dispossession and and so on, but it has indeed a global um, um, uh, content because it looks at the interaction between these processes of proletarization and the development of industrial capital uh, that takes place originally at the global level through the accumulation of merchant and usur usurious capital uh, and, and therefore uh, the centrality of colonialism in, in this process. 
I think quite a lot of scholars have interpreted this and have criticized Marx for seeing uh, the process of primitive accumulation as a kind of prehistory of capitalism. We have Rosa Luxemburg, for example. We have uh, David Harvey um, that say, well, actually, this is an ongoing process. But at the same time, they don't really explain exactly how conceptually it um, we need to understand these. And so we risk like lo looking at this um, accumulation by dispossession thing as completely unrelated to the actual accumulation of capital. And what we see is that um, if we read carefully, and that's another aspect um, that uh, whereby China is quite important, is that the processes that Marx describes, for example, about the opium war, when he talks about the war of the commercial nations uh, taking place with the um, uh, globe as that uh, theater. So this is a war that uh, took place in the industrial period, okay? So this is basically contradicts the view that this is a prehistory of capital because this was a purely industrial uh, form of colonialism taking place in China where you have actually the free traders of Manchester driving this expansion of the markets because they were worried about the process of overaccumulation of capital. So this is not like um, accumulating merchant capital through, um, through colonialism. This is a form of colonialism that responds to the new needs of industrial capitalism, of a developed industrial capitalism in England. So I think this shows, and this is an example which is super relevant to show that for Marx himself, the process of primitive accumulation, so-called primitive accumulation is an ongoing process. So my view is that in this chapter, Marx describes and highlights the continuous relevance of forms of direct violence, like colonial violence, to the process of capital accumulation uh, as such. Um, on the other side, in order to understand these um, and the kind of continuous relevance of these forms of direct violence, we need to understand that while the state played a kind of primary role in the period of so-called primitive accumulation, uh, because of the kind of lack of development or even the relative weakness of, um, of industrial capitalism, of uh, manufacturing production. Just think about it that uh, China, India were probably the main uh, manufacturing powers at, at the time when England was developing. And so you needed the state be, in order to protect your commodities. And that's why they implemented all forms of protectionism against the Asian commodities because of the weakness of capital. And then when capital developed industrially and became competitive, then the state and the violence uh, of the state becomes a secondary force when uh, the economic compulsion, the economic um, forces uh, in themselves are not enough to expand the market, for example. So I, I think we need to understand this kind of different um, uh, relationship within the period of primitive accumulation and then in the period of industrial capitalism. And so you, you mentioned the critique posed by Rosa Luxemburg and David Harvey. And I was interested as well in your article and you talk a little bit about uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein, uh, Roy Maromarini, and uh, Giovanni Righi. 
as well as Andre Gunder Frank and their their own critique um, that's coming through dependency theory, world systems theory, about Marx ignoring the the external process and viewing Europe as kind of the core of, of the world system as they they talk about it. And and that was interesting to me because we in, in this group also we that we run in the, the channel as well, we've talked about world systems theory and dependency theory and and I, I was curious about the the kind of contrast you pose between their their reading of Marx um, and their their writings on the subject as well as their own theories. Um, and and what I think you assert, which is that they they're missing, you know, some of, of Marx's writings on the subject and and he actually was far more concerned with this subject than they they believe. So yeah, I was interested in that and, and how in the article you incorporate some of their their opinions about Marx and his and his deficiencies, how you've clarified that a little bit with some of your, your discoveries. Yes, so I think one of the main problems is that there has been this kind of dominant view that Marx isn't dealing with colonialism in a systematic way. And so the conceptualization, if you look at Samir Amin, for example, uh, he thinks that when he conceptualizes capital uh, capitalism, he has in mind the kind of Western societies when, where there is a kind of coincidence between uh, production and consumption, so the development of the internal markets, which isn't the case in, in the colonies. And I think this kind of idea, um, we can find it in different forms, also in uh, Gunter Frank and, um, and other uh, dependency theorists. So definitely, I think that um, my engagement with, uh, with them is, um, is a positive engagement because I think they're overlooking some aspects of, um, um, of Marx's own understanding of capital, which actually ground a much more productive um, engagement with um, theories of dependency and, and so on. Great, and, and another subject I'm, I'm interested, you wrote a little bit about um, that I'd like to talk more about your kind of discoveries. It was the centrality of Atlantic slavery to Marx's analysis. You wrote a little bit about, about the subject and, and I think people didn't understand like, you know, they reading Capital UC Marx make allusions to slavery and it's clear that he kind of understands it as an important part of capitalism. But I think a lot of people assume also that it was just a secondary process to him. But yeah, I wonder you you know what you discovered with his writings on slavery and actually how how critical he saw it to the development of capitalism. Yes, so I mean there there would be a lot of things to say. So I don't really know exactly where to start. What what I could say is that I think so one of the main issues with the readings of Marx is that uh, there is still idea, this idea that he was looking at England as a kind of national economy. But if you look at all his articles, I, I don't even think that people need to read the notebooks, uh, which is a huge amount of, uh, of notebooks, but just read the articles on Ireland or on the United States on the Civil War. And the, what one can see is that actually he looks at Ireland and the United States as uh, two pillars of the British industrial system, right? So the thing is that he, and also I think at the end of the sixties, um, he still saw the United States as a British colony, even though they were independent and, and so on and so forth. 
So because he saw Atlantic slavery and particularly the development of slavery in the United States, especially the second slavery after the Industrial Revolution, as really part and parcel of the process of industrialization, industrial development in, um, in, the, in England as well. So he had a much more global understanding of the industrial system. And also I think um, he's kind of, uh, uh, so he integrates, includes um, the, this, um, the, the plantations and the slave system within the British industrial system. And, and therefore also see how the conditions, for example, of the, of the slaves, of the enslaved population is uh, impacted by the development of uh, industrial capitalism. So I think we he anticipates uh, an analysis of the kind of first and second slavery and how the patriarchal system that had developed initially after the uh, 17th century becomes a much more brutal and exploitative system as a result of the impact of um, industrialization in uh, in England and how this impacted on, on slavery in the United States. And then the other interesting things, I uh, think that I think uh, it's worth emphasizing is how, um, so he engages to a certain extent uh, with the question of slavery in the final chapter on the so-called, uh, on the um, systematic theory of colonization by, by Wakefield. Um, and uh, yes, so I, I think in, in that chapter, um, he kind of um, on the one side embraces uh, Wakefield's uh, view that um, slavery um, was a, wasn't a kind of um, remnant of the past, but uh, was a product of the specific conditions in which capitalism was expanding, right? And therefore uh, what happens, so especially after the kind of um, abolitionist movement, progressive abolition of slavery within the British empire, is that uh, Britain started to present itself as an empire based on uh, freedom, right? So on the abolition of slavery. And therefore um, this uh, produced uh, a kind of contradiction because uh, expanding in territories where there was a kind of low concentration of people and therefore the possibilities for workers to get access to land and become peasants, uh, there was the problem, how do we guarantee cooperation and therefore uh, profitability, right? And, and so, um, yeah, so I, I, I and that, <laughs> okay. And I think there we have also the role of colonialism because uh, we, we see that um, Marx as well, actually, thanks to the expansion of the markets and the empires in, in Asia, so what we have is um, increase in the labor supply in these uh, territories. And so the possibility to replace slavery uh, through other forms of uh, we could say indentured uh, uh, labor or semi-slavery, like for example, the coolie system that emerges along with the progressive expansion in Asia, right? In, in India, in, in China and, and so on. And so there is this um, 
this analysis. I'm actually trying to finish a chapter on this, um, uh, where he engages with Wakefield on, on this. That So he says, well, because Wakefield, Wakefield was saying, well, we need to impose an artificial price on the land so that uh, we can basically make people work for a salary even without imposing slavery, right? But Marx says, well, actually, it's the development of global capitalism that is expanding the labor supply, uh, both domestically through, for example, industrialization, increasing unemployment and migration from England, but also through colonial colonialism. And on the other side, he also kind of diverges from the views of Carey, Henry Carey, and other economists uh, that represented the industrial capitalist class in the United States, and used to say, well, actually, it's the progressive development of capitalism that also le leads to a progressive abolition of slavery. And so Marx and Angus actually said quite clearly from the beginning, I think from the 50s or so, that uh, this wasn't a kind of progressive or automatic process, but the struggle of the enslaved um, was the key for the actual abolition of slavery. And that's why the civil war, I mean, they supported the civil war so strongly. And so the kind of revolutionary content of that war. And so he saw the agency, uh, I think, of the enslaved as key in the uh, process of abolition. But at the same time, I think they also saw how the expansion of the global um, reserve army of labor made the conditions for slavery um, obsolete, uh, progressively obsolete. Something that interests me is throughout the article, you make, you make reference to the fact of sort of these allegations of Marx of Eurocentrism um, and his view of, you know, Europe as the center of his analysis. But I think what we, you know, we've, we've done some similar discussions about some of Marx's writings. And I think ultimately what we can conclude is not necessarily to, you know, completely vindicate him and, and say he was ahead of his time, but to instead say that he, as, as I think you're, you're coming to it that he actually had a far more um, detailed analysis than people give him credit for. But I, I also think to say, you know, that should not downplay. And what, what I'm interested in, in discussing this is, is just how central he views colonialism as uh, a process to capital accumulation. And, and, uh, and it, with, with that too, I'm interested in um, some, you know, you talked as well in the article about the critique or the expansion of the concept of, uh, of uneven and combined development. And I was wondering through this, how you, you know, kind of what, like what conclusion you came to on, on this concept and how it relates to Marx's analysis. And if he does have a stronger analysis of colonialism than is decided before, you know, to what extent is, is that concept uh, applicable to his theories and, and how do we maybe take a different view of it today after understanding a little bit more about how Marx thought about colonialism. So you are asking me what Marx would say about the concept of uneven and combined development? Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I don't think that Trotsky necessarily got uh, or understood the global projection of Marx's analysis or the centrality of colonialism in his analysis. So I think to a certain extent is uh, useful, uh, but 
on the other, I think the concept of imperialism, uh, if it is combined with the concept of imperialism, um, well, I think sometimes in the kind of literature on uneven and combined development, there is an underlying method, I would say methodological nationalism or not a proper understanding. Yes, what I would say is not methodological nationalism, but there is an analysis of the combined and uneven nature of capitalist development, but um, this analysis usually fails to conceptualize these processes um, of unevenness uh, within the overall dynamics of capitalist accumulation and the tendencies of development of the system, like for example, the process of impoverishment and how it basically unfolds at the, at the global level. So I'm, yes, so I hope that's clear. I, I just think it's, it's interesting, but uh, if uh, it is uh, contextualized within this analysis of the overall process of accumulation as an imperialist uh, system. Yeah, I would just ask, you know, in general, how all of this leads to perhaps like one conclusion that you you come to or come away from it, which is Marx's understanding of of the creation of the world economy and of world money. And I think I would just ask from his writings on China in particular, you point out, you know, the extent to which he he's understanding the opium wars and this process of the unequal. Uh, treaties as as setting the groundwork for this creation of the world economy and and the, you know perhaps like to borrow Samir Amin's phrase uh, accumulation on a global scale, but I I wonder to what extent he's predicting the this creation of the world economy and and breaking his analysis away just from England, and you know he has he has those letters I'm sure you're familiar with to uh, Veres Azulich where he he talks about you know don't generalize my analysis it's not just about England it's it can be general or or generalize my analysis not just about England um and don't just take it as a you know as England is the model for the entire world and Russia may follow a completely different model for example so I I wonder with the conclusions you come to and you say Marx didn't believe that colonialism would take over China for example uh you know, how did how does his conclusion and his prediction in some ways came true to a certain extent, right? China was never fully colonized. And so, you know, he perhaps would have a lot to say about the current Chinese system um, that was never fully colonized and so has had its own process of development. But just in general, I wonder what predictions he's making about the world economy and, and colonialism uh, and how some of them have come true, some of them have not necessarily, but how they ultimately led to a better analysis of, of, as you said at the beginning, Marx's theory, Marx's theory of capital in the world we live in today, which is very much impacted by imperialism and post-colonialism. Okay, this is a very articulated uh, question. So I'm just going to say a few things. First of all, um, when you think about it, um, if your analysis starts from world money and not from a national economy, then I think your concept of capital accumulation changes quite substantially because we are looking at relations, right? Like the how the development of world money through colonization, through um, dispossession and so on and so forth, creates the conditions for industrial capitalism in England. 
but at the same time so this system itself it's um has global roots right because it presupposes these global processes and at the same time it's a global system in itself right because so what um i think it's the one of the important things that i, I would highlight is that when marx looks at the reproduction of this system even abstracting from the processes he describes in the final part on primitive accumulation it says let's presuppose that um, um, the field of action or the kind of the English system somehow is a global system. So he poses a coincidence between the national and the global, because to be completely honest, <laughs> I think probably he didn't even feel the need to conceptualize colonialism and the empire in itself, because this was the reality. I, I would say that um, the, all economists before him, the mercantilists, so-called mercantilists, Adam Smith, Ricardo, they all looked at imperial economies where capital uh, was mobile, right, um, internationally, um, within at least within the borders of the empire, but uh, also beyond that. So he looks at the kind of reproduction of the system at the international level and, and therefore conceptualizes capitalism as a global system. And in this way, he's able to identify the general absolute laws of development of the system. And he says one of these laws is the law of impoverishment of the working class, right? So if we start from this assumption that he's looking at England as a global system to identify these global, this kind of general laws of development, then what we can see is that in the more historical part, he's analyzing the specific paths through which Western Europe in particular developed industrially. And this is uh, what he also discusses in the letter to Vera Zazulic, right? So I was looking specifically at Western Europe. So you can't use that to generalize to every country. And then in the, in the chapter on Wakefield and, and so on, he analyzes the specific forms of primitive accumulation in the United States uh, that led to the industrial development of the United States. Now, if we look at uh, some of the passages in uh, volume one, especially those that he added, in the French edition that he personally edited between 1872 uh, and 1875, we see that, um, first of all, as I said earlier, um, he was very well aware that um, colonialism wouldn't expand in China. And this is something I think he changes his mind at the around, um, sometimes in the 50s, maybe 57, I'm, I'm not sure when he realizes that basically the resistance of what he called the Asiatic mode of production in China to the expansion of the Western markets was quite strong for the reasons that I explained earlier that kind of coincided a bit with the thesis of the Industrial Revolution in, uh, in, uh, in China. Secondly, so he also says in one of the chapters, um, in one of the passages that then ended up in a footnote or some, something, I think, in the, um, in the English edition. He says, well, actually, if 
China developed as a, an industrial country, then the tendency of the system wouldn't just be uh, to reduce English wages to the level of the wages in continental uh, Europe, but in a more or less distant future, to lower the level of European wages to the level of the Chinese uh, wages, right? And these kind of discussions, I must say, that was quite typical in the English parliament and so on. People were talking about this possibility. But why is this relevant? Because uh, one, uh, he kind of um, predicted that uh, China could develop as a capitalist country. And, um, and as in China, uh, in India, when he analyzes um, the um, Sepoy's uprising and so on, he also says, well, actually, but even before the Sepoy's uprising, he identifies the possibility of a national development based on an anti-colonial revolution in Asia. Okay, and he actually says, well, the fruits of this development will depend on the ability of the popular masses to appropriate the results of this uh, development. So he foresaw, I would say, uh, the fact that <laughs> anti-colonial movements in Asia could transform the kind of um, <laughs> the nature and of, of the world economy. And he predicted the big country effect because of the demographic um, characteristic, uh, characteristics of China and argued that actually an independent capitalist development in China would accelerate the tendency of the system towards the impoverishment of the working class. So I personally think that he saw quite a lot of what we are witnessing today in the sense of what has been called globalization and so on, because um, this conceptualization of the system as a global system allowed him to identify the kind of general tendencies. And so I think also to look beyond this kind of dualism of the world economy be between industrialized countries and producers of raw materials. So he's already looking at the process of accumulation as a global process of accumulation. And, and so I think what we are witnessing today in some, some, in some ways are, yes, are the processes that um, he kind of analyzed at the very high level of abstraction already in uh, Capital Volume 1. Well, thank you so much. That was a, a great answer. And uh, I don't have any further questions, but I would just wonder um, in the in the conclusion if you have anything you'd like to anything else you'd like to mention or anything else people should read on the subject if they're more curious about about in general um, I mean I, I'm not sure people will also be able to access the the Gesamtes Gaba but you know anything else that's that's more accessible for people to read more on Marx's thoughts on colonialism um, yeah well I think you know um, what I would recommend is to, to have a look, there are a lot of, first of all, of course, there are the PDFs available online mm -hmm. uh, of all the collected works, because when uh, Lawrence and Wishard uh, <laughs> decided to privatize, I think some good uh, fellows, good soul decided uh -huh. to make everything available. So make good use of the Marx Angus collected works. And mm -hmm. also, I think 
there is this thing so that people i mean there are some scholars of marx who spent quite a lot of time on the maga the marx angus gesamtes gabe right. and i also spent quite a lot of time uh but at the same time i must say personally I started by telling you about my dissertation and my dissertation where I mainly used some volumes, which I think are still available, like on colonialism, okay. which was uh, pub published by Progress or something, mm -hmm. Moscow, mm -hmm. Moscow edition, which I'm sure we can find PDFs online. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so what I don't think, I mean, there are interesting things that come out when you look at the notebooks and so on. It's quite an excruciating process. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> painful. It's quite a lot of work. And um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessary. Um, yeah, it's that so necessary because I think that I, I promise you that I think if people, what, what happened to me <laughs> was like, like my professor said, okay, read these articles. And I had an Italian a version of what I think it's available on the on colonialist mm -hmm. volume and he told me well you know you can use them but of course Marx wasn't able to uh, integrate these analysis mm -hmm. I, I was just like after reading them and just realizing how much time he spent dealing with the mm -hmm. colonial societies I just couldn't believe that he would basically you know, postpone the publication of volume one, spend all his time on this and not mm -hmm. integrating that analysis. So what I recommend um, students and so on, just read these uh, from the collected works or from on colonialism and so on, just spend, like read them car carefully also beyond some of the criticisms. I, I think even the articles on India, we didn't discuss them, but just try to, just go beyond some of the language which mm -hmm. may have changed and try to understand what he's actually uh, saying. And I think um, it's quite revealing of, um, of his understanding of, of uh, capitalism. So that's what I would uh, recommend. Well, thank you so much for don't for be taking... scared. Don't be scared by all the technology uh -huh. and, and so on, because yeah, I think um, much of what we need to understand Marx is already published and mm -hmm. has been published for um, tens of years. Like these mm -hmm. articles have been published for 70 years. Mm -hmm. And yet people just don't pay attention because they think they kind of disregard colonialism as a subject, not right. because we don't have the sources, the sources are there. So that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. And I think what you mentioned as well is a lot of people just say, it wasn't integrated at all. He wasn't thinking about it. He was just doing England and that was it. But I think it, it's fascinating to me that you mentioned that he wrote these and took so much time to write them prior to writing Capital. And I, I can't help but think, as you said, that they must they certainly played some role in his analysis there. So thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it.